Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 103, Pitt and Fox. Things were not looking good in Whitehall. As the summer of 1755 progressed, Prime Minister Newcastle was met by a terrible series of events. Firstly, the Royal Navy had been unable to stop French reinforcements reaching Canada. And then, that the army had met disaster at Monongahela. And the Commander-in-Chief, Braddock, was killed. This placed Newcastle in a very difficult position domestically and internationally. I want to begin today with an explanation of the domestic difficulties Newcastle was facing, and for that, we need to return once more to the nuances of the British political system. My apologies if what I'm about to say is a bit obvious to you, but we really all need to be on the same page here. To be completely honest, I'm going to be quite glad when we shift completely to the US Constitution in 1789. It's rather straightforward when compared to how the British system works. Separation of powers makes things a lot simpler. You have Congress split into the Senate and the House of Representatives as the legislature, whose job it is to create laws. You have the President, the Executive, whose job it is to ensure the laws are carried out, and the Supreme Court, the Judiciary whose job it is to interpret whether the laws are allowed by the Constitution. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's good enough for our purposes right now. Now, in comparison, the British system has the House of Lords, the House of Commons, Parliament, the Prime Minister, the Cabinet and the Monarchy, all with interlocking membership and responsibility, and that's just the legislature and the executive, never mind the judiciary. I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot barge pole. We spent a great number of episodes covering British political developments over the 17th century, and how the monarchy transitioned from taking the leading role under James I, to forming a partnership with Parliament under Charles II, until the Glorious Revolution saw Parliament take the senior position in the relationship. The monarch was still influential, of course, but was no longer the centre of power. That was Parliament, but what is Parliament? Parliament is made up of the House of Commons, which is elected, and the House of Lords, which is not. Parliament acts as the legislature. A law can be proposed by either House, the Lords, or the Commons. Once the same bill is approved by both Houses, it then goes to the monarch to sign, where it becomes law. The law is then to be carried out, a job which is performed by the cabinet. The cabinet is a collection of ministers who each run a separate ministry, such as the Ministry of the Interior, or the Ministry of Defence, or the Ministry of Magic. Members of the cabinet are also members of parliament, and over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, there emerged the position of prime minister a first among equals in the cabinet. By tradition, this was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who had the single most important position in the cabinet, controlling the money. In addition to executing the laws, a cabinet also takes a leadership role. The monarch entrusts the government to govern and to lead, and to do this, 
they need to be able to win votes in both houses of parliament. This is why governments and cabinets are formed by groups that control parliament, and most importantly, the elected House of Commons. This could either be by one political party or a coalition of parties. If the government is unable to control the Commons by, say, losing a vote of confidence, the government would resign, new elections would be held, and a new government would be formed which could command the confidence of the House of Commons. With me so far? Good. This is so far broadly true of both the 1700s and the present day, but now we need to turn to the specifics of 1755. Newcastle was having difficulty, because the disasters that occurred in America were shaking the confidence of the House of Commons in his ministry's ability to control the situation. And there was very little Newcastle could do about it because, well, he was a lord. He was a member of the House of Lords, not the Commons, and so he couldn't secure the situation there. You'll recall that he had jointly run the government with his younger brother, Henry Pelham, who sat in the Commons and had performed this function well, but he died suddenly in 1754, leaving Newcastle to take the position of Prime Minister, but severely limiting the power of the government. What he therefore needed was an ally within the Commons who could build a majority to secure his government. There were only two options, Henry Fox and William Pitt. Neither particularly excited Newcastle. Much like Newcastle, Henry Fox was a protégé of the great Robert Walpole, who had created the position of Prime Minister. He was born in 1705 and became a Member of Parliament in 1735. He was an opportunist and learned much from Walpole about how to manipulate Parliament. Once the government of Walpole fell, Fox supported the government of Pelham. Fox became Minister of War in 1746. He understood all too well how to get things done in the Commons, and, as an added bonus, was a favourite of King George II. So far, so good. However, Fox was extremely ambitious and quite unscrupulous. Newcastle didn't trust him. He was not a master orator. While he could get laws passed, Newcastle doubted his ability to raise the morale of the House to keep the government going. This would be important during a war. Then there was also the fact that Fox was closely tied to Cumberland, whose meddling had played an extremely large role in creating this mess to begin with. Then there was William Pitt, potentially the single greatest orator to grace the House of Commons. Pitt was three years younger than Fox, born in 1708. Unlike Newcastle and Fox, Pitt was not a protégé of Walpole. After a brief military career, Pitt joined the House of Commons in 1735, and fast rose to prominence with his scathing speeches against the corruption of Walpole's government. Pitt, along with Fox, was considered a future leader of the country, 
but he had significant problems. While Fox had been in the same circle as Newcastle and so was a natural fit for a senior position within the cabinet, Pitt had sided with the opposition in a group known as the Patriot Whigs. He had continued this once Walpole's government fell, and turned his tongue against Newcastle instead. Newcastle hated Pitt. The King also hated Pitt. While he liked Fox, Pitt had joined the Leicester House faction, a group that had gathered around Augusta of Saxe-Gotha, a widow of George II's hated son, Frederick. This is how Pitt formed a close connection with the teenage boy, George, Prince of Wales, the future King, George III. This had kept Pitt to minor roles within the government. Then there was also the difficulty of how Pitt could help Newcastle. Pitt was also deeply ambitious, much like Fox, but while Fox was master of controlling Parliament, Pitt had very little interest in the day-to-day administration of the government. There you have the problem that was facing Newcastle following the death of his brother in 1754. Only two men could secure the commons for Newcastle. Fox or Pitt? Did he choose Fox, the political ally, the senior minister, the friend of the king, who was an ally of the disliked Cumberland and lacked the power of oratory? Or Pitt, the master speaker, the popular man of the people, the friend of the heir, who had denounced Newcastle and Walpole countless times in the past? Newcastle decided to appoint Thomas Robinson, a political non-entity. Needless to say, Newcastle's control of the Commons was not secure. From here, we turn to the diplomatic course of events. The situation was deteriorating in North America, but Newcastle still hoped he could control the situation in Europe. So far, when dealing with Europe, we focused on Britain's desire to maintain balance within Europe, and so to restrain France. But there was another major factor which we've only mentioned in passing so far. The Electorate of Hanover. The Georgians were kings of Britain, but they were also the rulers of the German states of Hanover, and George I and George II were both insistent that Hanover be protected during wartime, and a large part of Britain's continental alliance system was based on protecting Hanover. France and Prussia were the biggest threats, which helps explain how Britain had found itself allied to Austria and Holland. Yet, as we've mentioned several times now, this had to change following the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle. We've already been through the shift of Austria towards France, but the Dutch were also exhausted after the War of the Austrian Succession, and they were not keen on a fresh Anglo-French conflict. This forced the British into drastic action. They turned to Russia. Newcastle proposed a treaty with Russia that Britain would provide an annual subsidy of £100,000, which would be increased to £500,000 in the event of a conflict, to provide an army which would be ready to invade East Prussia. Newcastle hoped that this would deter the Prussian king, Frederick II, 
from attacking Hanover. But this would do little to prevent France from acting if she wished. Therefore, he agreed to pay several German states to contract their armies as a mercenary force, should war break out, as well as paying to increase the size of the Hanoverian army itself. This might have calmed Hanover, but it thoroughly alarmed the French. The only reason the French had not yet declared war formally was to build up its fleet, to give it a chance of facing the Royal Navy. Pitt opposed the subsidies, and heaped criticism on Newcastle. Newcastle's parliamentary majority was extremely shaky, as the MPs turned on him for this decision. Pitt's take was that it was a betrayal of British interests to send vast sums of money to a foreign state only because they shared a monarch, and his view was popular. Eventually, Newcastle's Chancellor of the Exchequer refused to release some of the money without an act of Parliament, and it was not clear that Newcastle could force the bill through the Commons. He finally turned to Henry Fox. Fox was made the Secretary of State for the Southern Department and leader of the House of Commons. Suddenly, Newcastle's position was stable. A debate on the subsidies took place in the Commons on November 13th, and Pitt was masterly as ever. He referred to the alliance of Newcastle and Fox as, and I quote, the conflux of the Rhone and the Sion. This a gentle, feeble, languid stream, and, though languid, of no depth. The other, an impetuous torrent. End quote. Pitt's speech might have brought down Newcastle's ministry, were it not for Fox, and the MPs he brought with him. The government won the vote by a two-to-one majority. Pitt and his supporters were then thrown out of office. Not that the subsidies to protect Hanover were even to last. King Frederick of Prussia was greatly unnerved by the effects of an Anglo-Russian treaty and the rapprochement between Austria and France. The prospects of being surrounded by an unfriendly Austria, France and Russia was too much for Frederick. He needed to come to an understanding with Britain. The result was the Convention of Westminster, signed in January 1756, which pledged that neither would invade or distress the other. There was also a clause that they would both oppose an aggressor who upset the peace of Germany, a helpfully unclear term which was vague enough to include Hanover and Prussia. This was a very useful treaty because it secured Hanover from Prussian attack, it ensured that Prussia would protect Hanover if the French attacked Germany, but Prussia would not be required to get involved if France and Britain went to war over something else, which Newcastle hoped would help to localise the conflict to North America. It also didn't require for Britain to pay a peacetime subsidy. It acted as the final break between Britain and Austria, allowing the secret negotiations between France and Austria to speed up and the Convention of Versailles was signed on the 1st of May, 1756. It was a near-identical treaty. The French would help Austria if it were attacked, 
while the Austrians were not required to join France in a conflict against Great Britain. In theory, these alliances prevented a war from breaking out in Europe. Hanover was protected, while France and Britain would be free to attack each other's colonies to their heart's content. Only the strangest of events could disturb the peace in Europe. Only if Prussia attacked Austria could war break out. But that was unthinkable. That would never happen. Never. Next time, Prussia attacks Austria. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. (laughs) 